Are you a disciple? And it's an important question to ask because of this. For the first 13 years of Christianity, Christians were not referred to as Christians. They were simply called disciples. They were followers of Jesus. And a Christian is just that. It's a disciple of Jesus, someone who follows the life and teachings of Christ. And, you know, today many people identify as a Christian because they believe in Jesus and that belief constitutes their faith. But the Bible says faith without works, faith without action is dead. It's not faith whatsoever. There is more to being a Christian than believing in Jesus, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's admirable. But there is more to being a Christian than believing those things. And throughout this series, we've been looking at certain aspects or attributes or qualities of someone who is born again, someone who is a disciple of Jesus, someone who follows Jesus. So this is just a brief review of where we've been in the series, and then we'll kind of get into the message this morning. But a true follower of Jesus is born again. A true follower of Jesus is born again, and Jesus said that himself in, in, John, 3, in John chapter 3, we must be born again. In order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And new birth is a transforming work of the Holy Spirit. If we aren't born again, we won't follow Jesus. Look at the lives of the disciples before they were born again and compare it to their lives after they were born again. It's a complete change. Why? Because they were born again. The Spirit of God transformed them. And number two is this. A true disciple is humble and submissive. A true disciple of Jesus is humble and submissive. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, we can't follow Jesus in that manner unless we are born again. I, I don't know about you, before I came to Jesus, I didn't have that, that commitment to follow Jesus in that way. There's no way. But only after we experience new birth do we have that desire and that ability to follow Jesus as Lord. Give you another great example in scripture. Here, here's a, a, a great example of someone who, who wants a savior, but not a Lord. And this is Matthew chapter 19, starting verse 16. Now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but the one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and Come, follow me. But then when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What does Jesus do? He's inviting this young man to follow him. I mean, this man obviously is serving God, or at least to whatever capacity he can serve God in. And Jesus recognizes that. Hey, but there's just one thing. You have one thing that's going to prevent you from really following me as Lord. And it's this. It's your, your wealth, your possessions. Go sell that, then follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't have any problem with wealth or possessions. Uh, everyone in here doesn't need to go out and sell their stuff in order to follow Jesus, right? It was just what Jesus looked into this man, saw into his heart, understood, 
That's what's going to keep him from following me. So Jesus goes right out. If you really want to follow me, then do this. Sell your possessions, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Again, what does Jesus see? Jesus sees, again, there's not a problem with having wealth. There's a problem with wealth having you. And that's what he sees in this young man. You'll never submit yourself to Christ as Lord if something has you, if it's Lord over you. And without new birth and without the power of the Holy Spirit, being humble and submissive to Jesus as Lord is not possible. If, think about this. When we experience new birth, this is what takes place on the inside. And this is why we must be born again to follow Jesus. Ezekiel prophesied about this in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel prophesied about a day when, when believers would receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would dwell in them and give them a new heart and a new desire. And that's what takes place when you are born again. You are given a new heart, and with that new heart, you have new desires. Does that mean you don't ever sin or you don't have the temptation to sin or you don't deal with your flesh? No. But here's the difference between the two. You've been given these new desires. You have the, a new polarity of your heart. It's instead of bent on doing the wrong thing, it's bent on doing the right thing. And there is a battle. But here's what's good news about this is you can win and you can overcome. Before this, you were a slave to sin. But after you are born again, you can't overcome sin. Number three, a true Christian bears spiritual fruit. And spiritual fruit is just the proof that you've been changed. And that you are not only changed, but you are being changed. You're being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. If a person is born again, they're humble and submissive to the Lordship of Christ, they will produce spiritual fruit. That will be the result. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit, it's, it's good, it's, and its fruit good, I'll spit it out here in a second, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. So are you bearing spiritual fruit in the season you're in? People will say they follow Jesus, but their lifestyle paints a completely different picture. A true follower of Jesus is known by their fruit. It testifies to a new birth experience and an ongoing submission to Christ as Lord. When believers or unbelievers, I should say, when unbelievers see you as a believer of Jesus, following Jesus, serving him, producing spiritual fruit, they take notice. Listen, this world wants nothing to do with religion, and I can't blame them. There's nothing appealing about religion. It's dead, it's lifeless, it's a whole. But there's something about a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when you have that vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and you're living for him and you're serving him and he's transforming you and he's, he's molding you and shaping you into this person that's more and more like Jesus, there's something that's appealing to that. I don't know about you, but if I see a tree and there's fruit, I want to eat it. I want to grab it. And there's something appealing. There's something attractive about fruit. Fruit is appealing. It's, it appeals to the eye. And it's the same way when a person is born again, especially this, if if you are a person that has come to Jesus recently and there is change in your life that's taking place, people will watch you. They're like, something's different about that person. What's changed about them? And what spiritual fruit does, it gives it the opportunity for evangelism. And that's really what I want to talk about here this morning. A true follower of Jesus should make disciples. 
Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So a true follower of Jesus makes disciples, and that's the focus of the message. Jesus didn't ask the disciples to go. He commanded them to go. He didn't say, well, when you, when you have time, you get around to it, I want you in your spare time to go out and make disciples. It's not what he said. He said, go and make disciples. It's, it's not him asking permission. It's him, it's us submitting to his lordship. And quite frankly, again, if you're not born again, you'll look for every excuse not to do what he's called you to do. He's called us all to make disciples. So there's two ways to read this verse. Either it just applied to the disciples then, it has nothing to do with us today, or it has everything to do with us today. And I'm sure in here we all understand the word of God is living. It's not something that's dead. It's not like a history book. It's something that applies to us today. The spirit of God speaks through the word of God to us to this day. And we are all called to go and make disciples. So why aren't we making disciples? You know, the great commission is what we refer to this verse. Matthew 28, 19, the great commission it should not become the great omission. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he shared these words with his followers. And I want you to think about this. On the evening of the resurrection, Jesus breathes on his disciples. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're born again at that moment. He spends the next 40 days with them, discipling them, training them. And then right as he's ascended into heaven, he kind of gives this command to them. Here, here, here are the words, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's we'll skip down to verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And look at this, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And Jesus instructed his disciples not to go and make disciples, not to do any type of ministry until after they had received the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, until they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we as Pentecostals, we tend to forget the whole purpose of what takes place in the upper room in Acts chapter two, when the 120 believers are there gathered waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We unfortunately forget the purpose of that experience. And many churches have isolated the purpose or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or the presence of God to church services. Here's what I mean by that. When you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're anointed, you're empowered, and you're empowered to go and make disciples. Every one of us. Not just certain people, but every one of us. And the church that isn't going to the lost and making disciples isn't functioning in its main purpose. Now, some people may argue and say, well, I don't know if the main purpose of the church is making disciples. Maybe the main purpose of the church is worship, what we're doing here today. And by the way, this isn't worship, it's an expression of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship isn't just something we do on Sunday mornings between 10.30 and 12. Otherwise, if you do that, you're going to become very religious. Worship is a lifestyle of dedication, submission to Christ. Remember, uh, does he want sacrifice? No, he wants obedience. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So here's my point. Imagine this. We're called, all of us, 
to make disciples. And if we aren't making disciples, we aren't worshiping him. Put it in another way. If worship is our main function, if we don't make disciples, we won't have worshipers. It all falls onto making disciples. Let's face it, if we're not making disciples today, there will be no church tomorrow. So that is the main purpose of the church. And that's why Jesus commanded, that's why it's called the Great Commission, go and make disciples. And I don't care how spiritual or Pentecostal a church is or seems to be, if you are experiencing God in incredible ways and your church is lively and active, and I'm all for that, I'm not against that, but if that church isn't going, something's missing. Something's missing because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the believers was to go and make disciples, not just to come and have church on Sunday and have some type of dog and pony show. The calling of the disciples was to receive power and to go out with that power and make disciples. The imperative of the Great Commission is simple. Go and make disciples. In the upper room experience, let's say that experience that took place in the book of Acts chapter 2 happened today. In most of our churches, this is what we would do. We wouldn't do what the early disciples did. The early disciples received the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and immediately they go out to the temple courts. Immediately they start witnessing, sharing the gospel, and people get saved. What we would do with our understanding of Pentecost today, we're like, man, that was incredible. We need to come back and do this again tomorrow. We need to have another church service like that. We would completely miss the whole purpose is you receive power to go out and make disciples. We just say, no, 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 we, we need to just be in here together. See, there's a selfishness that can arise within Pentecost we got to be very careful of. When God visits a church in a special way, when his presence is with that church, it's not for them just to keep on coming together, and that's the main focus. The main focus is this, is that we have the fellowship of the Spirit, that we have fellowship with each other, we have a unity that's taking place, and we take that love and unity out into a world that is dark and different and is dying for that. But what do we do? We get all selfish. We're like, no, no, let's keep it to ourselves. And the more we do this, the better it will be. It's totally self-centered. It's totally focused on self. And we forget the imperative of the Great Commission, go. Go and make disciples. The Holy Spirit empowers us to make disciples. So why aren't we fulfilling this purpose? I think we miss the heart of Jesus often. When When it comes to sinners, we miss the heart of Jesus. And I think this is one of the reasons why we aren't so compelled to reach lost people. But here is the the heart of Jesus expressed through the words of Peter. And of the disciples, I think Peter could really understand the compassion of Jesus. Denies him three times. Walks away essentially from the ministry. Jesus has to go back to Galilee. He's back fishing. Has to bring him back in. But look at this, what Peter says. The Lord is not slacking, it's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Aren't you grateful that he's long-suffering towards you and I? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of Jesus, that all comes to repentance. Jesus doesn't want to see anyone perish in their sins. If we're born again, we're filled with that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead should we also share that same desire? Jesus went to the lost. He sought them out in their sin. The early church understood this, and that's why they got out of the upper room. When they received the power God poured out upon them, 
they immediately left that place and started making disciples. And we can see the book of Acts as the history of that, the account of that. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus went to the temple. He attended the, the temple when he was in Jerusalem, if there was a special holiday or if he's ministering there. But really, most of his life takes place in Galilee. So he goes to the temple. We see that he's in the synagogue. And even when he's not in Nazareth, he's visiting the synagogue. We see that taking place. So he's visiting these religious institutions, but a majority of his ministry takes place outside of those religious institutions. Here's my point. Why is it that the vast majority of the working of God's people takes place in this building? Why isn't it taking place outside of this building? We should go to church to worship, absolutely. Again, there, there is something that, that you, cannot, you cannot duplicate unless you have the gathering of God's people. Again, when we worship together, we fellowship together, this is, again, a, a kind of a preview of heaven. Now, heaven's going to be much better than this, I know that. But we don't get to heaven, we all have our individual islands, and we're just there by ourselves. We are there as a family. God, we're, the, we're there to get sons and daughters of God. And there's a fellowship that takes place, a unity that takes place. God, his presence is there with his people. He's in the midst of them. And church, God is in the midst of us today. If you're born again, the Spirit of God dwells in us. We're two or more gathered in his name. He is there. He tabernacles with them. He dwells with them. And you just can't duplicate that. So worship, fellowship. This is, there, these are reasons why we come to, to be encouraged, to hear God's word, to study God's word, to pray. But after leaving this place and receiving encouragement, we should not miss our purpose, which is to go and make disciples. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But I've met some creatures, haven't you, that desperately need Jesus. And I'm just saying, listen, there are plenty of people in this world that need Jesus. Church, we're called by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit to go and make disciples. But many of us are ignoring that imperative of the Great Commission. I think we've got it all wrong. Not only we, we lack some compassion, I think, but I think we also have done this, and, and the church is the blame for this. Most of you know this, I have a, a large, large church history. Uh, I was in large churches, you know. And one of the things I've found in this, that we, we it becomes business. Church becomes business. And, and I understand that. I'm not saying that's always a bad thing, but it, it, when you deal with money and staff and buildings and all, it becomes business. But I've noticed this, the larger your church gets, the larger its footprint, the more known and the more people you've got to support and all, it's, it's very, there's a lot of pressure. And so there is this idea that if something's broken or something needs fixed or this needs to be changed or this needs to be done, we just use hired people to do this. And unwittingly, because we want excellence, we want things to work right, and the larger a church gets, you know, we want it to work and function better. So what do we do? We throw money at it, we hire people, and we take out the serve capacity. And so you start hiring nursery workers, you start hiring cleaning staff, you start hiring landscapers and all this and that. And you're just, you're subbing all this out and your people just come to church. And I think what happens is this, we're like, well, everything gets done. So what about the Great Commission? Isn't it the pastor's job? To do this? This is the pastor's job to preach, and we bring cheap people to church, they get saved, and that's, that's why we need to change this, because that's not the way it's supposed to work. 
See, I'll give you a, a great example. I, I think the, the office of, of um, evangelist is one of the most misused offices in the Bible. So let, let's go through this scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. See, all, not everybody are called to these roles. These are ministry callings. They're not jobs and they're not uh, gifts that everybody have. They are specific ministry callings. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Look at this. For what reason, for what purpose does God call these people to these offices? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. For whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body and the edifying of itself in love. When people are called to one or all five of those ministry gifts, what we do are we are overseeing the process of discipleship. We are, insure, we are called to ensure that discipleship is taking place. Give you an example. The role of evangelists I've mentioned, I think is one of the most out of order uh, offices there are. Uh, in fact, we call people evangelists that aren't really evangelists. Here's what we classify as an evangelist. Someone comes in, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so comes in. They preach us a message. They get it stirred up. There's an altar call. They're an evangelist. But how many people have they won to Jesus? How many people do they win to Jesus outside of a church service? Because that's what an evangelist does. And then secondly, not only that, how are they training and equipping the church to win people to Jesus? Because that's their calling. That's their function. That's their office. That's their anointing. They're called to equip. You know, we read that verse I just read. We take out all the other gifts. We just take a pastor or teacher, but it applies to all five. A, give you an example. Let's say that you're in a church of a thousand people. A thousand people are in attendance. We have a, uh, an evangelist quote that shows up, preaches a message. And usually even when there's a thousand people, there's usually only a handful of people that are, are unsaved. Most of the people that are going to be saved. So let's say this, he preaches a message, and five or six people are there, and a couple of them get saved. Praise God, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with this, by the way. I'm just saying we're limiting this office. But imagine this. So a thousand people in church, a couple of people get saved. Praise God for that. But wouldn't this be more effective that you take that evangelist and those thousand people, and he preaches a service, a commissioning service. He uh, preaches a, me a message on ministering to people, uh, then he does like a seminar or a workshop, how to win lost people, gives you some strategy, prays, prays for you, and then sends you out into the community. They have a plan and a purpose. They send you to certain areas of the community and win people to Jesus. Or this, that person tells you, shows you how to win people at your job. Give you an example. Those thousand people will come into contact more, with more than 10 people per week. Just do the math. 10 times a thousand. I'm not a genius, but I think that's 10,000. You have the potential to at least reach 10,000 people more effectively than just 1,000 people and the couple people who got saved. That's just one example. We need to train and equip the body of Christ for the work of the ministry. Am I against evangelists? No, absolutely not. I'm just saying we're misusing the calling and the anointing that is on that purpose. And the church lacks evangelism personal evangelism, and it's the heart of the Great Commission. 
It's the reason why the church is here. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were scattered and weary like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, Truly, or har the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And now more than ever, we need harvesters. You know, we can say this, the world is dark. The world is lost. It seems like it's plunging deeper and deeper into darkness. And when Jesus looks at that, you know what he says? Harvest. It's better now. The harvest is better now more than ever. We're like, man, it's dark, it's nasty. He says it's harvest. See, Jesus has called all of his disciples to go out and make disciples, but fewer of us are obeying him. See, Jesus went to places where sinners were, where sinners were being sinners, and what does he do? He shows them compassion. Does he make excuse for sin? Absolutely not. Does he share a message that appeals to their flesh and he woos them into the kingdom of heaven? No, he doesn't do that. He shares the gospel in truth and love, but he goes to where they are. What's keeping us from going to the lost compassionately with the gospel? See, church, we cannot disciple people that we're not going to. And I, you say, I, well, discipleship is more than just discipling the lost. I get that. But if we aren't going to the lost and discipling them, we're missing something. Secondly, we make disciples. We, the imperative is to go. And then secondly, we make disciples. And if we're not making disciples, I don't care how many converts we see at an altar. We're failing the Great Commission. You know, so many churches are so caught up in this. We, we call people to believe. We they hear the gospel. We pray for them. Say this prayer. We baptize them. But if we're not going to disciple them, they're not going to follow Jesus. It just doesn't happen that way. We can look at the Bible as our example. Look at the book of Acts. Look at Paul's ministry. Constant discipleship. Spending time. You know, Paul himself, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, that is the epitome of discipleship. It's something we are missing today. If we aren't discipling people to be disciples, to make disciples, we're gonna, that's the reason why we have empty seats in here this morning. That isn't the Great Commission. That's the great blunder. We're, a lot of churches, even the Assemblies of God, we want to know how many converts you had this year. How many people raised their head and said the sinner's prayer? So concentrated on that. Rather, we should ask this, how many new disciples are added to your church? We live in a very polarizing time. There's no doubt about it. And if we lack compassion for people who are different from us, then we won't go to them. Sadly, the church has become more like the Pharisees in this story. I'm going to share this story in Luke chapter 7. We, as the church, have become more like the Pharisee in this story rather than Jesus. The, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she had knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee 
who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know and know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing uh, with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I, the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The woman, we understand, is a prostitute. The Pharisees is appalled by this. He's appalled at the fact that this woman is coming to Jesus and, and going through this. And he's just appalled that if this man was really a man of God, if this man was really a teacher in Israel, he would know what kind of woman's touching him and he would have shooed her away. He would have had her whisked away. Why is he allowing her to touch him? He's unclean now. I think we're becoming more like the Pharisee when it comes to winning people to Jesus. If we were at this dinner, how would we respond? How, again, what if this woman wasn't a prostitute? Let's, let's put it in these terms. What if she was a liberal, climate change, tree-hugging, vegan, pro-choice, trans activist? I think the church, we could talk a good talk, but we're no action. You see, mostly we'd say, well, if that person came to church, I'd, I'd sit by them, make them feel welcome. Well, what about when you pass them every day out in the world? We, we talk a good talk, but we're no action. See, they're out there. We, we live with them. We, we know them. We work with them. We go to school with them. We interact with them. We, we see them in the stores, whatever. What, whatever capacity it is, they're there. We tend to show little or no compassion for people that are different from ourselves. I'll remind you this, that uh, before I came to Jesus, I was liberal. I had, I had longer hair, I had a mustache. It was one of those thin mustaches. I had the earring, used to like to drink and hang out with my friends, party. I could be quite hot-headed. I could be just a real horse's rear end. But Jesus changed all that. So how many preachers, how many missionaries are out there, people God's called, people that are in sin, people that are living in a world different from our own, but God's called them, God's dealing with them, and we pass by and go, I don't know if I like this kind of person. I don't know if I can interact with this kind of person. God's, how many missionaries and preachers are we passing up? See, the harvest is ready, and the harvest is sinners. And again, we don't have to become PC, woke, whatever you want to call it, compromise the word to do so. Don't ever compromise the word of God when sharing the gospel. Go the complete opposite of that. Don't use the scriptures. Don't weaponize them. Don't take the Bible and beat people with them and make them feel guilty. Don't ever engage in that kind of activity. 
But I am just saying this, now more than ever, the word of God needs to be shared in truth and love. And I'm just saying we've lost compassion for lost people. And we've become more like the Pharisee and less like Jesus. Let me ask you this, when's the last time you led someone to Jesus? When's the last time you purposefully witnessed to someone, shared your faith, shared your testimony with that person? When's the last time you were involved in any type of discipleship other than your children or your grandchildren? If you see people sinning, pray for them. If they sin egregiously, pray more for them. See, what happened is, is taking place this. When you see people sinning on a level that you don't understand, they are looking for something. We look at those people and are appalled. We run away from them. What we should do is run right to them. The more you see a person, listen, when I got saved, I was at my lowest. I wasn't at my best. And that's often where we get saved. When you see people at a low, they are reachable. I can just tell you in my darkest hour, that's where Jesus found me. The deeper a person plunges into sin, the more they're crying out for help. Their soul is saying this, what must I do to be saved? We need to ask the Holy Spirit for his help, church. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into those lives that we're praying for, those people that we're praying for. Going to the lost, sharing the gospel, praying the, praying the prayer with them for the received Christ is only half the battle. The goal of the Great Commission isn't conversion, and I understand conversion has to take place, but the goal is discipleship. Because if they aren't discipled, most likely they're just going to fall right back into the pit they came out of. Jesus didn't say, go and make believers of all nations. He said, go and make disciples. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, and Jesus, when he had come out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Jesus saw sinners in their sin. He saw all the voids they're trying to fill. What does he do? He has compassion for them, and he preaches the word of God. And I pray Jesus will give us that same compassion for sinners that he has in these last days.